Welcome back to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten. I'm Parks Miller. Uh, this week, we decided to lighten it up because, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the last dumps, you know, the bum fight dump, it's a little dark. So what better way to, you know, raise your spirits than uh, a teenage suicide pact forged from the powers of 1980s heavy metal? Right? That seems fun for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do it. Or as uh, Queen would say, <laughs> don't do it. Don't there. do it. I don't know if you've heard that Queen song. It's called like, su- it's like, don't try suicide. And it's like, the the message is really serious, but it's still just like Queen being like, oh, don't try suicide. Don't try suicide. Nobody cares. Oh my it's God. It's really weird. If only these kids had heard that song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, what if that song has the subliminal messages? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. The, the, so we're talking about th- this is again one of those moments from the VH100 most shocking moments in rock and roll, uh, and this actually is really shocking. But essentially, we're talking about the Judas Priest subliminal message trial, where uh, they were brought to court over accusations that their music contains subliminal messages that would brainwash young impressionable listeners to do something terrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's get into that. So why is it a dump? Well, the Judas Priest subliminal message trial is a dump because it touches upon so many facets of niche pop culture. You have the dangers of rock and roll, the urban legend of subliminal messages, and you have the cultural witch hunt that was in full swing during the time of the trial that we are discussing. The lasting effects of the, of the trial was inarguably the exoneration of heavy metal being a source of teenage tragedy. Not until the Columbine High School shooting of 1999 would we see heavy or aggressive music be examined under the microscope of public opinion in regards to the role that it may have played in a horrific act committed by young people. Yeah. Okay, this this is like, this is peak satanic panic, yes. peak, like, music is the enemy. There's uh, the Tipper Gore and the, P- the PMRC, or the PRMC, like, the... Um which was where the parental advisory sticker came from. There was, Oh yeah. We'll we'll talk about that. Moral. There was, there was a few elements that happened uh, in this time. And with do it, hip hop, gangster, hip hop, gangster, hip hop, Jesus Christ. I sound so old. Gangster rap. Gangster hip hop. uh, Like hip hop and heavy metal, especially were kind of seen at this time as like these newer styles that were way more aggressive and scary and you know there's also talking about sort of like reagan era politics where there was like more of a move to kind of have a moral majority swing back towards the right and like christian values uh well it's a total like uh, it's a rebellion against the rebellion of the 1970s you know which was born from the fallout of the counterculture of the 60s so the 70s you have like this explosion of sex drugs and rock and roll Mm -hmm. uh in every you know inch of pop culture and then once reagan comes into office the everything changes and it's like we have to clean up all the damage done by the 70s yeah and i mean we you notice that there you know it's kind of things happen that way where sort of a very general sense of like a moral compass in a country will kind of sort of move one way or the other um and and the 80s was a time where it it felt like 
to some we need to clean up and to others it was like no we have to keep pushing because the the establishment the people that are in charge are like trying to take away freedom of speech and the entire idea that um music could you know cause someone to actually you know do something like murder someone or commit suicide uh, or even I, just take drugs like even like yeah. even just simple just stuff the, like that the influence of music to do something beyond just you know listening to the music the sort of a lifestyle uh i mean i think for us we we kind of saw it with video games and and like you said like columbine uh though there was music as well uh at the time but you know sort of I remember people talking about Grand Theft Auto and being like, is this encouraging people to be mass shooters? And so this this is honestly a very interesting question. I mean, it, it never ends. And now yeah. the blame is placed on, you know, Internet chat rooms and, and fucking, you know, extreme memes and things like that. And like this lone wolf thing. So there's always going to be a, a scapegoat. And it's because there has to be a reason why I can't. We can't just accept that some people are just fucked up. Yeah. You know, I mean, there has to be yeah. some reason why. And it was a lot easier, especially back in the 80s. It, it had to have been the music they were listening mm -hmm. to. It couldn't possibly be anything going on at home. But we're going to talk about all that stuff at length on this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, obviously, in this episode, we will be discussing suicide and self-harm and abuse, so be warned. And if you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or thoughts of self-harm, seek out some help and know that we are here with you and you are worth it. With that being said, let's get into it with Heavy Metal Maniacs. This is one of those episodes where the subject matter exists within a very non-dump universe. Judas Priest has sold over 50 million records during their career, which began in Birmingham, England in 1969. The band's popularity has spanned decades despite lineup changes and some notable scandals. We could give you the band's entire history up to the point in time we will be focusing on today, but why? Instead of giving you a heavy metal dose of Judas Priest background, we're going to paint a quick picture of the cultural landscape of the 1980s and the war on music. With the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 came a wave of Christian conservatism that burrowed its way into the fabric of American pop culture. While rock and roll had been under fire since its inception, until 1980, the fuss over what young people listened to seemed to have died down. But a new revamped battle against freedom of expression was about to begin. There was more than just a war on music in the 80s. The contemporary art scene was under fire as well, with artists like Robert Mablethorpe, Joe Coleman, and Andrea Serrano. They all made headlines for their shocking art. Pop culture in general was under scrutiny from the conservative majority. This included widely publicized attacks on tabletop games like Dungeons and & Dragons, and even cartoons like the Smurfs. And this is the flashpoint of what would become known as the Satanic Panic. Mm -hmm. It's crazy, just like how quickly everyone latched on to this idea that there was like i mean i i'd hate to relate it to something so e equally as stupid but it's like QAnon, you know it's like it's it, but instead of it being a satanic you know cabal of elitist a-listers this was a satanic cabal of teenagers in their basements playing dungeons and of, dragons of and listening heads. to metal yeah um and you know the there there's an image that comes with metal and that definitely kind of 
played into it greatly you know the long hair the the spikes the leather and oftentimes the satanic imagery itself yeah um, so this is yeah, actually it didn't come out of nowhere all right <laughs> yeah yeah um but it kind of went to this it yeah it very it, the satanic panic i don't know could be a dump i do feel like this particular subject has been covered a lot uh by other podcasts and media um it's certainly something that really does have a lot of dump like aspects uh and sure. it was very much like a flash in the pan but it did actually really affect certain people uh with very real consequences um and yeah when you kind of look into the satanic panic stuff a lot of that i mean it's just insane that people were just saying that you know there's a bunch of like satanists that are right you know kind of causing all of this havoc um maybe well, i'm a it, shill for the liberal holly weird media yeah, here I mean, but it, it's it's crazy because i mean like it, it's just a, a a clear example of people from a different generation trying to understand the new stuff and it just so happened that the new generation's music was like really extreme so like the gap between being able to understand each other between like the young and old mm -hmm. was just growing but you know but it became harder and harder to understand each other right and i think part of it is that there's always this freaking generational gap that happens with culture and our i mean literally the 50s like rock and roll they're shaking their hips they're making these allusions to sexuality like the 60s they're you know all of these moments had these big uh gaps in it and i think one thing that's really interesting about the 60s and like the hippie movement is that the boomers attached to that were really able, you know, there's very much this point of like, we were trying to change, you know, we were pro they had the Vietnam war to protest against and they still had elements. Yeah. And of they just rang that chamois dry. Right. And they had elements of the civil rights movement to kind of keep their, that it kind of gives it like a sense of righteousness. Um, and whereas this is when you start to see uh, movements that kind of, they still represent this like younger uh like a generational sense of you know kind of anxiety or angst or displacement uh but it starts to become in this way where it's like you're just getting into this weird like more esoteric shit this like heavier music um satanic yeah, without imagery. something We're, like clear to yeah, be rebelling but it against still it was comes, more about just being unhappy it still comes know? from like this unhappiness that happens i think what is interesting is that maybe punk and grunge kind of like punk kind of had this back to this 60s sort of like stick it to the man kind of mentality and then grunge was just very directly like my life sucks right and right. so being very direct but metal is kind of still coming from this era, but it's it's utilizing all this like fantastic imagery. But the whole idea is to be like pushing buttons, right? Well, it's just about rocking. It's about rocking. It's about rock and roll. It's about drinking beers in your fucking El Camaro and like fucking ripping Marlboros, you know? El Camaro. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, and again, like the transgressive art scene and the music and the film movements that were all happening, it was just a reaction to the Reagan era conservatism. And I mean, it's 
the the Satanist thing that started like everything was being called saint satanic. Uh, I have a great book. It's called like the dangers of the new age or something like that. Buddy of mine got me it, and it, it's it was written by like the kind of architects of the satanic panic, and they list everything from Nintendo to Girl Scouts as being the cause for the rise of Satanism. But the Satanism that they're talking about is a far cry from the teachings of the long established Church of Satan that did exist. It's not even real Satanism. It's this made up like horror movie satanism that is really rare to find you know and like obviously as far as satanic panic goes and this our dump isn't necessarily wrapped up in satanism um you know or the satanic panic but it's all under the same you know general umbrella but you know you have like the west memphis three trial where three metalheads were you know accused of these horrific murders it was obvious to anyone that wasn't wrapped up in all that frenzy that they didn't do it and it took them decades to get out mm-hmm. and to be released but for every thing that there is like the West Memphis three, like there's also like your Rod Farrell's and Natasha Cornett's who did have these little satanic teenage gangs that did murder people. So like, you know, like everyone had something to argue against with each other. So Mm -hmm. like there was no disproving it outright, especially in the minds of the people that were pushing that kind of, kind of a thing. Also just want, cause you mentioned uh, Robert Maplethorpe, the uh, photographer. And I feel like, that just kind of reminds me of our previous dump episode, the, you know, disco demolition, uh, where that was also seen as kind of like, it it was much, it wasn't so much the moral, but there was a general sense of discomfort and homophobia with disco being so like outwardly, like so out and gay, you know? And so that also, I mean, that was like, you know, late seventies, early eighties, but there's still, it's still kind of this like, this coming, I don't know, just like a little, a sense of the conservatism that was becoming more popular. Right. And, and I mean, and then of course the eighties explodes with all kinds of stuff, you know, that, that has to, has to do with that. Um, but let's get into one of them. So the fight against music in the name of protecting children, at least came to a head in 1985 with the PMRC trial, the PMRC or the parent music resource center was mostly made up of wives of powerful politicians. Their spokesperson and leader was Tipper Gore, the wife of then-Tennessee U.S. Senator and future Vice President Al Gore. And we're going to burn through the PMRC because we will be doing a future episode on it that will better explain the whole thing. But essentially, here's what happened. Tipper Gore bought a copy of Purple Rain for her daughter and was horrified after hearing the song Darling Nikki. What ensued was the creation of the PMRC and one of the most legendary trials in pop culture history. While there were several pop icons included in the list of inappropriate music, a.k.a. the Filthy 15, the majority of the music the trial focused on was heavy metal. And that was due to the imagery that was often accompanying the music, like pentagrams, leather, fire, devils, fucking devil horns. I mean, like Satan shit, you know, but it's like it's make believe. And a lot of it came from like Lord of the Rings and fantasy. It's not necessarily say like when they're talking about demons and like goat heads and stuff, they're not talking about worshiping the Dark Lord. They're just like, this shit looks cool. And it's like mystical. Unfortunately, though, darling Nikki was highly autobiographical. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I don't know if it was, but that song is crazy. It's wild. Well, it's interesting that like on one hand, they're like, oh, wasp, like fuck like the beast. They're mm-hmm. like, that's obviously bad. And then they're like, and then Prince is also right. on this list. You I mean, know, so it, pushing, like, no one was safe. But it's at the same time, like, I feel like both of those, those artists, they want that's That's also the reaction they wanted, you know, but we're about to get into this area of it becoming like, is this legal? You know, right. 
Right. So ultimately, what came of the PMRC was the parental advisory stickers that to this day are placed on albums deemed inappropriate for young listeners. While it seemed like a victory, the stickers did little to deter record sales and in fact made the music contained in stickered albums all the more alluring. But it would be a very real tragedy that would once again put heavy metal in the hot mm -hmm. seat. Yeah. Now, while the pr the like, pr that's, the that's the thing. It's like we thought, like, okay, we have the stickers. We lost. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like the artists really did consider the parental advisory thing a major blow. It's like movies, right? Like there was a rating system for films. There wasn't for music. And they felt like there had to be because as music became less palatable to the masses and it became more specific, like with two live crew right. and some of this metal stuff. It's like, okay, like we can't just let anyone get this. And there mm -hmm. might be some merit to that, but that hadn't been done before. So it really was a huge blow to musicians and artists, Though the but it didn't really do anything. The irony is that then it later kind of, I feel like as the nineties were on, it kind of became a badge. Like you wanted that. I mean, you had especially to get with like, by the time like Eminem or, I mean, just all of those rappers like Snoop Dogg, Eminem, like having the sticker on there. I mean, they, they made such an iconic logo, the parental advisory. It's dope. It's super dope. It's fucking awesome. So then you kind of want, it's like how, how now that you know it's parental advisory, like how parental advisory can you get? Yeah, how much advisory from a parent do I need for this? <laughs> uh, it yeah, worked for uh, me though. My parents definitely, I had to sneak my CDs. I had to go around. I had to get edited ones normal, from, from yeah, Walmart. So it did work in uh, that sense. I mean, we talked about this on Podcast 99 uh, with, like, the corn episode. Like, my dad would see those stickers, and he would be like, oh, what does this say? Like, oh, they're going to talk about killing your parents and stabbing your dog with the fork? Right, right. Like, that was his go-to thing. Like, kill your parents, stab your dog with the fork. Like, these CDs must be saying that. But one time he asked a babysitter I had, uh, I really wanted the Kid Rock CD. You know, this was back in the day. Devil this was back cause. in the day. But, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. The, the first one. Mm -hmm. or, the first big one, I should yes. say. And uh, the babysitter was like, oh, it's not that bad. And so my dad got me the one with the parental advisory. And when I went home and listened to it on my Walkman, I was like, oh, shit, this is really bad. <laughs> like, I was not ready for, uh, for, for some of that stuff. Yeah. And I thought I was. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we can get but, more into that on that episode for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and what's funny now is it's not even a sticker. Like, like record labels just print the parental advisory on the actual album art. Right. Like, and, it, like they stopped actually doing this. And stickers. now, like we said, I think that the, the worry isn't so much music though. There was like a big fervor with like WAP or whatever, but now it's, yeah. it's way more like social media. It's this unmitigated access to YouTube and it's like influencers or people who are creating content. That's the, the new worry more so than yeah. music. And there's no controlling that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while the parental advisory stickers were meant to protect young listeners from explicit lyrics, what could be done about more sinister aspects of an album or a song? What if there were hidden messages layered within songs that were so unnoticeable that one would have to listen to the song several times over to even catch wind of it? And by that time, the damage would have been done, and the hidden or subliminal message was already burned into the impressionable mind of a young music fan. And we keep saying young because that's what the whole PMRC thing was and the Satanic Panic. Like, no one was worried about, like, adult contemporary musicians. Like, no one was looking at, like, John Denver and being like, oh, what's he doing to his fans? You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a there's a cutoff point for the artists that were, you know, 
conceived to have been a problem. And it's funny that I actually mentioned John Denver because he testified at the PMRC trial in favor of freedom of artistic expression, and he was totally against the PMRC, mm -hmm. and he was kind of the biggest player because they're like, oh, shit, like, this guy isn't even in this fight, and he cares enough to come here right. for this. Right, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I almost made a little connection about... Uh, Almost made a little connection there about uh, losing your head, uh, but I'm not going to do that because that's not the show that you, we do here. I mean, you kind of just did. So, yeah, but there's a lot of heads uh, being lost in this episode, apparently. So <laughs> the concept of subliminal messages is nothing new. Ever since sound recording was invented, there have been subliminal messages and experimental sounds layered within recordings. This all starts with the practice of backmasking or playing sound in reverse. Thomas Edison discovered what he described as a pleasant effect when playing phonographs in reverse just one year after he created the technology. And he was probably like, oh shit, like this ragtime blues is telling me to fucking kill my mom. And like a, uh, a day after he discovered ganja. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one year. Yeah, he's like, dude, what if? Now, famed occultist and magician, that's uh, magic with a, a J, Aleister Crowley, also praised backmasking as a means to train one's brain to think in reverse. Don't know why you would need to. This idea inspired composers like John Cage and several others to use recorded sounds as an instrument and, in a sense, created you know, experimental or noise music. But it was within the genre of rock and roll that backmasking really took on a more notorious role in music. Perhaps the most well-known group to integrate reverse sounds into the background of their songs was the Beatles, who started using backmasking in 1965 on their album Rubber Soul. While most of the sounds used by the Beatles were just that, sounds, soon curious listeners began assigning meaning and purpose to the sounds, which spawns all sorts of urban legends about records being played in reverse. Like the famous scene in Little Nicky, you know, when, when they're trying to listen to what Ozzy's saying, he's like, no, put on Chicago. That's where the... I command you in the name of Lucifer to spread the blood of the innocent. Oh my God, Chicago kicks ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Also, that's where the Paul McCartney is dead. Paul is like, dead. Myth starts is in the backwards messaging. They said like, like no Paul, no Paul or whatever, and they're like, oh, because Paul McCartney's dead. Fucking idiots. Yeah. Um, I mean, Pink Floyd I'm, and mm -hmm. Electric Light Orchestra, they would use backmasking in a more specific way, where they would actually record a message that would be heard if you played it backwards. But they were always innocent. It wasn't like fucking kill yourself or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I mean, this is also, I mean. I will say when you listen to, <laughs> to it backwards and yeah, you're also, it's, you're bringing up the record, you know, vinyl, uh, in which it's, it's actually, it was very easy at that time to do that. You just, you just could manually sp spin the record backwards. I mean, this point yeah. you would have to actually, you could never play a CD backwards to my, I'm sure you could with like a CDJ, not very common or easy. Uh, and an MP3, you'd have to get on some sort of audio editing program and reverse it. But, yeah, nowadays you have to really work for your satanic messages. Yes, but imagine that you are just like, it's the 70s and you're smoking like a ton of weed and you just like start playing your records backwards. I will say it does sound, it sounds really weird. It sounds very uncanny. And for many, many times over, the sound of reverse, like human voices in reverse is very, it's creepy. It's really creepy. Yeah, totally. You use it in like horror movies. Like if you want to make 
some character, like a ghostly, like a possessed demonic character, if you have some backwards speaking in there, it just, it sounds fucking freaky. If you've taken a couple hits of acid, you know, maybe all the more you're yeah. going to start, you're going to, it's, it kind of allows for hallucinations. Cause it's not just random noise. It's literal human voices being spoken that are kind of being jumbled up. And so your brain wants to find something that makes sense within that nonsense. So your brain is kind of actually, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but it's looking for, <laughs> it's like the freaking, uh, the, the, is the dress green or blue oh gold or whatever. Yeah, that See, people need to look at that for some fucking weird subliminal mind or uh, fucking melting what's the shit. Other, what's the other silly one where it's like, it's a, it'll be, they'll play, they'll layer sounds like multiple words onto one piece of audio. And then whatever, word is actually being shown to you is the word that you hear. So if you oh, show right. you like three yeah. different words and whichever word you focus on is the one you can hear. So that being said, your brain actually can be tricked quite easily uh, into hearing yeah. stuff. Definitely. And I mean, yeah. And, it, and like you said, it just sounds fucking weird, but there's like backmasking is the reverse sound subliminal messages might not be in reverse they might be something that's so quietly turned down but it is played you know the, yeah. in the proper and a way subliminal message so, is also in advertising it can be something just very very simple do it. uh yeah do it. um you know i know for instance there's like amazon it's like the little arrow in amazon right. it goes or fedex from yeah. the a to the z so there's an arrow so it's kind of there's this it's saying A to Z, like we have everything there that there is. And so it's just it's just like a little nod, a little nudge. I mean, well, and we talked about it on our, on our Halloween Whopper episode too, with like colors. Like mm -hmm. color is very impactful. Yes. So like, you know, rest like Subway uses green because green is like gives you this fresh mm -hmm. kind of feeling. Red and yellow like inspire passion and like kind of like raise your blood level a little bit, makes you hungrier. Yes. Like McDonald's, you know. So there's all kinds of ways to mess with your mind on a very unnoticeable level in a very real way. But again, the whole thing with what we're talking about today is that it wasn't there. You know, right, so it right, was right, it was right. people this... placing something that literally didn't exist. Yes, and also now that we're talking about advertising. The irony there is that you can use subliminal messaging rampantly. Um, I mean, that's basically advertising is just trying to convince you to buy something. As long as it's to like buy a product, then it's okay. Though right. to re recall another dumps, Joe Camel. Part of that was trying by making the camel seem kind of cool but also something that a kid could relate to. I mean, that's essentially is like subliminal messaging to be like telling kids like cigarettes are cool, you know? Yeah. Not to mention his penis nose, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, uh, hiding in plain also, sight. <laughs> that makes me think of pickup artists. Cause I Ooh, we're deep in dump world I, now, but I was, well, because, um, Ross Jeffries, who was one of the, uh, pickup artists that we talked about, he was kind of like the godfather of it. He was doing it like the eighties right. and nineties. I we've also mentioned Louis Thoreau a lot and Louis Thoreau I've been revisiting some of his weird weekends um, oh, which yeah, are these great. great series and he did one on hypnotism which kind of also sort of relates to this whole idea of trying to convince people to do things with like suggestion and subtle mind manipulations uh, but Ross Jeffries he interviews Louis Thoreau interviews Ross Jeffries and one of his lines is like this subliminal message where he he likes to talk to women about going in a new direction because 
is he nude. says like, is it new direction or nude erection oh and wow and he's dude. like saying this to louis thoreau completely seriously and then louis just drops his pants and bangs him because he can't help it because the hypnotize yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Now, while it was widely known both back in the day and now that artists will sometimes include reverse sounds or even lightly layered in added tracks to their songs, it is extremely rare for well-known artists to try and hide secret messages within their songs for the explicit purpose of triggering a response. But in 1990, that is exactly what heavy metal maniacs Judas Priest were accused of. Now we're getting into the playground music. I call it, it I call it playground music. Like when I worked at the Museum of Death, me and my buddy Eden, uh, in a he's in a great band, uh, the Blood Wisdom. So if you know, if you, I'm sure they got some subliminal There's messages going on in their shit. Fuck. But uh, we would always hear like a, like some kind of like certain metal songs from the '80s. We're just like, oh, that's playground music because it reminded us of a song that would uh, spark this kind of. Mm. Uh, reaction that we're about to talk that about. That also makes Buckle me think up, of folks. that corn album cover where the girl's on the swing, but then in the shadow, oh, yeah. it looks like she's hanging herself. Oh, Ooh, boy. It's like that. It's yeah. that, but it's, it also is very effective in that age when you become a teenager and you start to get into like edgy shit and you're like, Ooh, have you seen this? Like you start to become your interest in like horrifying things, you know, becomes peaked. Sure. Well, and it's like it's like something cool that you figured out, right? You know, and it, and it's like a it's like a secret that only the fans know. So you're part of something, but it's not supposed to be like you should hang yourself. Like that's mm -hmm. not the intent. So our dump begins on December twenty third, nineteen eighty five, in Sparks, Nevada. Sparks was a small suburb just outside of Reno and was the kind of place that a teenager would be dying to get out of. No pun intended. After a long night of drinking, smoking marijuana, and listening to the Judas Priest album Stained Class, 20-year-old James Vance and 18-year-old Ray Belknap walked to a local church playground with the intention of taking their own lives at the behest of what Vance would later say was brainwashing messages hidden in the song, Better By You, Better Than Me. Belknap placed the barrel of a shotgun underneath his chin while sitting on the roundabout and fired, killing him instantly. Vance followed suit, but miraculously survived the blast, disfiguring his face beyond recognition. Mm -hmm. yeah, now, the roundabout yeah. is that spinning thing that, uh, you know, you, you, you run around on and get real dizzy. Um, this is probably the worst way to use one. Yeah, and, and uh, that also feels like one of those things that would be like in a, a horror movie. Uh, but that's not to uh, in any way trivialize what happened. No, it's these terrible. are two people that, and they've made this pact, like a suicide pact. And, you know, Ray Belknap did not survive the blast. And James Vance got horribly disfigured from this. So it's, it's very sad. It's very true. Yeah, like th there's a documentary. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, towards the end of the episode, uh, Dream Deceivers, which covers this whole thing from start to finish. And uh, every time I was telling a friend, oh, yeah, the episode we're doing this week is the Judas Priest trial, they'd be like, oh, the guy with like the fucking chewed bubblegum face or like, Ooh. like, oh, the melted cabbage patch. Doll. Like, just like. Think about the worst way someone could look after surviving a shotgun blast yeah. to the face. It's, That's how he looked. It's like it is a, yeah, really unfortunate. Get, um, I guess when you survive something as traumatic as that, you get this intense amount of scarring, and the scarring 
create it's like a bubble look and so yeah yeah it, uh, yeah and i mean i mean absolutely unrecognizable you know mm-hmm. um yeah yeah it, it, it's just it, it's really jarring when, when you see him mm-hmm. uh in the film for the first time and you're just like oh fuck like this is so serious you know because at first you want to start just you want to just talk shit and be oh satanic panic these two idiot kids and as the story goes on you realize there's so much more than that and it's all you know the the cherry on top so to speak is just this the survivor and how and how just awful he looked when he came out of that um and you know when you look at the town of sparks and the playground where this occurred at like if you put on some old school heavy metal you can totally almost see this event taking place. You can almost feel the isolation that these kids felt. You know, it, it really is um, the unfortunately perfect setting for this. So after a lengthy recovery and multiple reconstructive surgeries, James Vance returned home a shell of the young man he once was. In a letter written to his deceased friend's Ray Belknap's mother, Annetta, Vance explained that the band Judas Priest, particularly their song Better By You, Better Than Me, was largely responsible for their actions that fateful night in 1985. Vance claimed that within the song, he and Belknap heard multiple do-its, which they believed were, in- do it, were instructing them to commit suicide. And that is when the families got involved. Believing that Judas Priest was responsible for what happened to their sons, the Vance and Belknap families decided that someone had to pay for what happened. And that begat what would be the most unfortunate and bizarre trial in rock and roll history. And and you know what's weird about this whole thing is that the lawsuit didn't actually go to trial until 1990, which is five years after the fact. Not to mention that three years after the incident in 1988, James Vance died of a drug overdose at the Washu Medical Center after lapsing into a coma. And the Mm -hmm. families, they decided to carry on with the lawsuit despite not having Vance, who surely would have been like at the center of the trial. Mm -hmm. You know, he would have been the one to say like, this is what I heard. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of kind of and we'll we'll get into this more i keep saying that but um there's a lot of like regret like from vance where i mean he was this band's biggest fan and but he was also super kind of embarrassed and like had to answer for what he had done he was afraid of his of his family he didn't want to he had to find a reason that they did this that didn't have to do with any of his home life you know right so it became, oh, well, it was Judas Priest, and it was these messages we were hearing. But he didn't want to get Judas Priest in trouble. So that puts him in this horrible depression where he's going to, like, ruin his favorite band for everyone else. All that's playing into this. It's, um, it's really heavy. So yeah. he dies. And it it kind of – it also makes sense because, you know, the, the parents, the family is going after this uh, lawsuit. And if, if he dies in a coma, I mean – you know, it drug overdose. Um, you know, he was v- deeply unhappy. I mean, his face was extremely disfigured. Uh, he was obviously very unhappy before because he tried to commit suicide. Tried to commit suicide, um, yeah. And so I think it all would kind of could create a sense of from the family, like we have to do this. You know, like even after he's died, it's like we have to carry this on because not only has he been disfigured he lives three more years in excruciating pain falls into a coma and dies it's it's it feels like it would make sense to from the parents perspective that you know this look at this horrible effects of 
of this Judas priest. Well, and it's music. also about washing their hands of any wrongdoing in the raising of their right, kids. It's which, like, again, like we have to see this through because mm -hmm. if, if we don't nail Judas priest for this, then it, it could be seen as our fault that the kids did this. Right. Um, and we'll get into that, but the raising of the children, uh, of Vance. Yeah. There's some things there. So yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. and all that's about to come out. Yeah. So it was mid-1990 when the trial began at the Washu District County Courthouse. Judas Priest decided to testify at the trial almost as a secret weapon. Prosecutors believed that the band would be a group of uneducated evildoers that would bury themselves in court. But in fact, it was quite the opposite. Judas Priest, particularly singer Rob Halford, came across as well-spoken and sensitive. You know, he was a sensitive artist. He was horribly upset about this whole thing. He was really the one that was put on the stand mostly out of everyone in the band because he was the singer, you know, and it was the lyrics that were, were on trial, essentially. Yeah. Even though it was a cover. That you couldn't hear. Even though it was a cover. Even though it was a cover. They didn't yeah, write it, it, the lyrics. Exactly. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, and and we'll, we'll, we'll hear a little bit of, uh, of both of those. You know, and, you know, but we're also getting into backmasking. So if there's, they're also saying that there is a subliminal thing that Judas Priest added that was not in the, even if you read the lyrics frontward, you wouldn't be catching yeah, that it wasn't included you know, yeah. yeah it's very it's all technical bullshit because it's made up so they had it's to also, like yeah nitpick at, at this it's whole also fucking wild thing. to think about that's what they're trying to get on trial is like to somehow prove that they have put this highly effective subliminal message in fucking their song. manchurian candidate shit yeah like, which also you would then think like then like lots of people would be committing suicide if it was right. this effective or it's like no we're gonna zero in on like these two kids or something you know it's like how does this work i mean again right. all this stuff seems so silly not silly to trivialize it but like how the fuck did they was this a court case you know yeah well i mean and, and that became kind of the, the the media that was covering it i mean you had like local media and small town newspapers being like this is fucking crazy heavy metal is the worst thing ever but the majority of mainstream coverage of this was like how fucking ridiculous mm -hmm. is this you know and that that's what you know started the whole documentary because there was a vanity fair article and the guy the director was reading it and he's just like dude what the fuck like i gotta i gotta cover this mm -hmm. um but also you know it became very clear that Judas Priest had no interest in including messages in their songs that would aim to kill the very people that were buying their records. Like Bill Hicks did a joke about that mm -hmm. where he's like, why the fuck would you want the people that pay you to die? But then Dennis Leary also made a joke <laughs> about it. That was much worse. And he said that there should be more subliminal messages to make more metal fans kill themselves. But first their parents and their favorite bands. I, uh, I think that this research led me to a rabbit hole of, all of the times that Dennis Leary has ripped off Bill Hicks. <laughs> uh, because yeah, there you go. Because Leary was kind of like younger than Hicks and it was just sort of a louder, more animated, like more cartoonish version. But he was even, you know, he kind of was coming up under Hicks and uh, Hicks even had some sort of off the record words to say like, yeah, you know, do whatever you're going to do. But those, you know, I told the jokes first. Uh, so right. that was one of the rabbit holes I went down. Right. Now, the song in question was Better By You, Better Than Me, off the group's 1978 album, Stained Class. 
The song was actually a cover. The original version was released by the British rock band Spooky Tooth in 1969. But again, it wasn't the song itself or the lyrics that were on trial, but the subliminal messages that were believed to have been layered within the song. There was a couple (laughs) messages that they thought they were hearing. One was do it. That's the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And then another one, which is kind of weird, is let's be dead. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no subliminal message that's like, hey, buddy, go kill yourself. It's always like this weird, nonsensical, you know, like sentences and because things like that that make me believe it's like, dude, if you're going to include a subliminal message, like put the fucking message in there. Like, let's be dead. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, that's not going to be in there. Yeah, I guess it's because it's you're hearing it. And so you're trying to grasp. So it always is sort of not quite the way you would say things. Uh it's grammatically or just in common England, English language. Uh, but I could also see how that kind of, it sounds silly, like let's be dead, but then it also maybe would add to the spookiness, the, the creepiness yeah. to be like, let's be dead. Like that's not how I would say it, but I know generally what that means. So then it kind of, it adds to the mystery, mystery or the scariness. Cause like, Oh, it's kind of like this weird, message well like if you play that song uh why can't we be friends from war backwards it's why can't we be dead back like and and it'll just go on and on and on um and you know i gotta tell you upon a blind listen there is zero indication of the existence of these messages and actually last night uh just to put this to the test i did what's called the uh playground challenge where I listen to Better By You Better Than Me over and over and over while smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol and I'm fine I'm mm-hmm. here. So, you know, I mean, you guys can try it at home. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. Obviously, there's some kind of risk involved, yeah. but um, uh, didn't didn't affect me none. <laughs> so originally, the band and their label believed that the case would be thrown out on principle due to the First Amendment. But the presiding judge of the trial, Jerry Whitehead, claimed that because the very purpose of a subliminal message was to be hidden, it could not be protected. The Vance and Belknap's legal team, headed up by attorneys Tim Post and Ken McKenna, bought they, they brought in like a slew of these expert witnesses that didn't really like there was no expert witness for subliminal messages. So they brought in like audio technicians and like they, they had all this new technology where you could see the sound waves on a, on a digital screen and things like this. It was all very cutting edge. It was used for like wiretapping and things like that. And they're trying to break down the song, playing it backwards in court. They must have listened to it in court like a million. Can you imagine if they played that song so many times in the courtroom? And it did have subliminal messages that everyone in the courtroom just fucking yeah. kills themselves. Like it worked. <laughs> like that was, you know what I mean? Like yeah. And then I think that was the other sort of part of the Bill Hicks joke is like, which kind of goes back to advertising is like, if you're a band, you put a subliminal message, you would you would want people to just buy, buy more, more of your records, you know, uh, which is exactly how it works in advertising. Uh, yeah, maybe it, it was just it, a so, Nike ad, so, like you know yeah, what I mean, that was exactly. layered in, uh, and it just went horribly wrong. I do remember, um, but what, it was a, yeah. Sorry, no, go on, go. <laughs> it was a guy, William Nickelhoff, that claimed to have found the duets within the song, and they brought in, like I said, recording experts, audio experts, and all this new technology was brought in to break down the sound waves. And the backbone of their argument was not only what they claimed to have found within the song's audio waves, but also the behavior of the two victims prior to the incident and also their behavior after becoming heavy metal fans. It was like, oh, 
before you know that like they, they there was no inkling that they would have done something like this before that night but then also they were like but when they started listening to this music their behavior did change so it's you know the music's influencing them that coupled with this subliminal do it that's layered throughout the song forced them into a position where they felt like they needed to commit suicide uh, again it's this is just art on trial that that that's what it is and it's trying to find you know any any comforting reason as to why these two young people would would take their lives which i understand you know from the family standpoint but this wasn't the right way to do it you know mm -hmm. so every day of the trial there were dozens of metalheads assembled outside of the courthouse to show their support for the band some traveling hundreds of miles to be there but there was also an equal number of anti-metal protesters and Rob Halford said that it was definitely comforting knowing that they had supporters in their corner as they were incredibly upset and stressed by the whole ordeal. And in fact, he claims that the band had a lot of respect for America and their American fans and even the American legal system, which they saw as like this like great, you know, government system put in place, which is just an odd thing for them to, you know, admire. But they said, uh, like this, and it's like a quote. They said that the way that they felt when they would come in and see the judge was probably the way that their fans felt when they would see them. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, fuck, like, there's a judge. Like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah, he was. And, uh, you know, that I think, uh, fast forward to our time now, and I feel like most people have become far more cynical of the American legal system. But I do believe that that you know, that was something that was kind of like that, that kind of goes into a, a much more old school idea of America. It's like the land of the free. It's, it's this very idealized place and the, um, the justice system. It's like, this is where, you know, they do right. And I mean, that's just, I just know that that was a greater perception. Um, well, yeah. You know, back in and the day. <laughs> I mean, you know, Rob Halford also said that like, you know, they went to the trial, A, to just show respect to the whole thing. They felt like if they didn't show up, it would seem like they didn't care. And they did care because they lost two of their fans and they wanted to, you know, in some way support them and, and kind of, you know, like so support the memory of them and, and all that. And, and not they wanted to take it very seriously. But they also assumed that this would have gotten thrown out immediately because of free speech in the First Amendment. But as they found out, you know, this these hidden messages that you don't list on your liner notes with with all the lyrics, those aren't protected because you're not saying that that's in there. Right. You know, and it's, it's, uh, it's like screaming, uh, fire in a theater. Like that's not free speech because it elicits a, an yes. immediate response yeah. kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's the same deal. So when asked on the stand point blank, if there were any subliminal messages in the song, better by you, better than me or any other songs of theirs, Haltford responded. Absolutely not. <laughs> and he was even asked to sing the song on the stand, which was a treat for fans who got to get a seat during the trial. During it's his like acapella MTV rendition, <laughs> every line of the song, which he did not even write, was examined along with the breaths that he would take in between verses. Mm -hmm. And it would later be decided that the supposed messages and the, or the duets were actually just his breaths. Mm -hmm. Like, and they're like, oh, that's a duet. Like, he just did it. And, and, like, even when he's singing it, you know, and if you watch Dream Deceivers, they show this. He's on the stand. He's got the lyrics on a sheet in front of him. And he's singing. They're like, what was that? And he's like, um, I'm, uh, I'm breathing. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm breathing in between lines. And they're mm -hmm. like, interesting. Like, it's like, what the fuck? Like, dude, yeah. it, it's all just such a major stretch. And it, and it was from the start. But perhaps the saddest and most unexpected discovery during the trial were the boys' backgrounds. 
Both came from troubled homes, a, a fact that neither family was freely willing to admit until they were on the stand themselves. The Vance home was filled with alcohol-fueled abuse, usually aimed at James. His mother's strict religious values, coupled with his stepfather's drinking and physical abuse, often led James down a path of substance abuse and rebellion. This behavior led to an expulsion from school and many behavioral therapy sessions, during which he told his therapist about his severe depression that was brought on by his home life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ray Belknap had his own set of problems growing up as well. As a child, Ray was known to get into trouble of all sorts. One of the most intense instances was when he shot a cat with a dart gun. He and his friend James would regularly get into fights with others and began experimenting with drugs and alcohol while getting into heavy metal music. Vance claimed the music gave him power, like a drug. He would even show his mother his newfound obsession, but unsurprisingly, his mother denounced the music as she only liked Western and classical and saw heavy metal as satanic. Yeah, this is in that, uh, the documentary you mentioned a little bit. You get some glimpses uh, of of the home life of especially of james vance uh and you've got his stepfather on camera without really batting an eye just talking about all the ways in which he would physically abuse him uh for things like smoking marijuana um and while also kind of very casually referring to his alcoholism so I can't remember the exact line, but so even and even his mother is sort of just there saying like, yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of got a little bit of a drinking problem, you know, yeah, uh, just kind of completely <laughs> I hear brushing that, that but <laughs> under the rug. Um, and then I think he also wasn't he like there was like an instance where he was like gambling all of the money away, you know? Yeah, like this is some I like, mean, it was just terrible. And of course, yeah. they're pointing their finger everywhere except at themselves. And this kind of abuse is very chicken in the egg. It's like, well, we hit him because he was acting out. And he's like, well, I was acting out because you hit me. Well, it, you know, it, it's like, yeah, and it kind of has this very I think the other unfortunate dynamic is because it does sound like most of the kind of physical abuse was coming from a stepfather. Um, but then his mother was so religious, so it almost seems like there was these two tensions where she was probably not even really happy with his stepfather. Like, his mother was probably not even really happy with him, but it was all just being... It just sounds all dysfunctional and, and channeled in the wrong ways um, because basically it's like the kid is just sort of taking in all of this dysfunction of the relationship and even right oh sorry what i was gonna say is even when they're on trial like this documentary has little clips of them at home kind of after a day of trial and you can even see there's this one really interesting moment where he says the stepfather says something to the mother about like you're just always getting defensive and then she's like immediately just like why is it always why is it always me that did something me. wrong it's yeah, always me it's always dude. me and, she, and you can tell that at the same time you know it's also the what happened is these these kids you know shot themselves and one of them survived and it was super duper sad and so you can tell that she is is also very hurt you know through this like you you can you feel that she is like a very hurt wounded person um and no one really knows what to do about it and you can tell that and probably was influenced by the church too because of all of this like sort of satanic imagery or association with priest judas priest that like this is the way to do it is like you got to go after the band you know right you got to go well, after also his you know it, yeah her religious influence like 
like I said, you know, it's like James would he like he got really into this music that like made him feel not so alone. And that's what a lot of metalheads will tell you, you know, like metalheads are very sensitive a, a lot of the time. And this music's very powerful and it, it makes you feel, yeah, powerful, maybe like a drug. But that sounds a little intense. But he liked it so much. He was trying to show his mom like, mom, share this. Like, I like this. Like, I want to share this with you. And she would shoot it down, you know, and it's like, I get it. Like, you don't need to like it. Like, you know, I remember like listening to my, you know my dad he didn't want me to have any of these cds with parental advisories but he would still let me listen to the music i liked in the car you know or like if i found a band that like i wanted to show my mom like she might not be into that but like she would like give it a listen and be like ah, not really my thing but she's like this is fucking evil james and this is the reason why you're doing all this fucked up shit and wait till your dad gets home and blah blah, blah. and it become it just like this compounding of blame yeah. and and that and is then, what and then the know, dad's like drunk control. and he's just like Lost all his money gambling, so he probably... And now he's got to come home and listen to Stained Class. The album came out in 78, James, let it go. Yeah, but it is it's, it is wild to... I suggest watching the documentary because just the way he kind of... Yeah, just... And again, this was, sort of was more of an era where that was accepted, but just to be like... Basically, like, hell yeah, I beat his ass, you know? That's what you do. Yeah, you know, that's you, what you do. You step yeah, out of it, line. It's, it's, it's all fucked you get up. Beat, and there's, and, and, but you can kind of even tell that there is not any consideration that that would even be a problem. Like, the idea that you're getting beat, like, I think he said something about right. closed fist, like closed fist punched by your stepfather, that that would maybe have any kind of effect on who you are, right? It's well, and then, essentially and then meanwhile, like your mom's just in the other room praying that you don't fuck up again yes. so he doesn't hit you again. Yeah, and ooh, man. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, Belknap's, you know, he's not having any better of a time at, at his house. You know, mm -hmm. these two kids find each other. They bond over, over this music. Now, it also came out that Belknap and Vance would spend their days fantasizing about mass murder, contract killing, and suicide. Mm -hmm. They they drew pictures of this stuff. They would talk to other people about it, like, oh, we want to be hitman. Yeah, we want to kill people. Oh, we want to shoot. Like, they could have easily gone the Columbine route. Yes. You know, but, but they didn't. They turned it inward because they felt so shitty about themselves, and they only, like, they only felt like they had themselves to blame because that's what their parents instilled in them, mm -hmm. you know, especially on the Vance side. And I guess that in the, col the Columbine thing, it's like, ultimately, yeah, what we have this we have these problems and they're so tragic so you you know especially with all of these like school shootings mass shootings and so obviously it's gonna it creates such a strong emotional reaction it's so sad and it's like how you know how could this be prevented um and and i think in especially in the case of this judas priest thing it's like some people people are driven to do these extreme acts of violence you know um but yeah. what it what it kind of shows is that it's not it's not just as easy as like it, it it would be really nice if it was just the satanic band that and just like get them to stop making music and then it's you know and then it's that fine problem yeah. solved and it's it's just not that easy because really what you're doing is you are taking the vast minority of Judas Priest fans which also hugely popular band they have millions of fans um, and so that's just not really how most yeah of, it's just you know. it's this one isolated instance you know and so what about tragic, all the other bands that are you know, way gnarlier you know yeah. what i mean but it's so and not tragic, to say so that, that there hasn't been that. 
crimes inspired by songs or artists. There have been, there have but been. it's so few and far between. And usually the music is a soundtrack to the act and not not the spark it, that, it, you know, it lit does the, create the fuse. something sensational um, because as we all know, with like true crime and stuff, it seems like, you know, we have this, humans have this fascination with what's dangerous and dangerous activities and, and murder and all this dangerous stuff. And so it, when you add something like there's this potential connection of any reason why someone would do that, it's just, it always becomes very uh, sensational. To, or just very right. appealing to know, oh, it was this song, you know, it was this song or it was this movie, it was this whatever. That That's what created the spark for them to be evil. Right. But it's, you know, it's uh, it, maybe it was the years of ter terrible home life. Now, so, yeah, it comes out during the trial that they would talk about killing people and themselves a lot. But this did little to change the mind of the families who were steadfast in their belief that Judas Priest was responsible for the suicide pact. James Vance's mother, Phyllis, was particularly vocal about all this, going so far as to tell her son, who after surviving the incident told her that he did not believe in God. Well, she, and, you know, she said to him, she said, well, you survived that shotgun blast solely because I prayed for you. And it's just like, thanks, mom, first of all. Like, <laughs> now I'm oh fucking mush. But, like, also, like, it's just so egotistical. And it's like, well, my prayers helped you. In no way did the years of abuse and neglect and me pushing this shit on you have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. If anything, all that shit is what saved you. And maybe if we beat you more, you wouldn't have been such a bad kid that tried to kill yourself with your friend. You know? It's a lot it's, for... It's, uh, I, I didn't have that growing up you know that sounds no. pretty rough so, yeah absolutely um, now when the three-week highly publicized trial came to a close judge whitehead decided that there was no proof of subliminal messages in the song but in kind of a backhanded way of dealing with this he left open the possibility that subliminal messages might have been included in other songs or maybe even in the song better by you better than me but they just couldn't prove it so it's like we're letting you off because like there's no proof of this, but I'm not saying it's not there and that mm -hmm. you guys didn't do this. You mm -hmm. very well might have. And that's like such a fucked up thing because it totally it's like you're innocent, but you're not, you know, and and that's kind of what, what happened with the West Memphis three. Like they were released, but they had to admit on record that there was enough evidence to to convict them, which is total bullshit. But it was the only way they could get out. And the only way Judas Priest could get let off the hook is if they, you know, kind of agreed where it's like, well, like, sure, maybe it's in there. You just couldn't prove it in this case. Mm -hmm. And it's like, God damn it. Yeah, yeah. So the band's legal fees, they reached a whopping $250,000, not to mention a $40,000 fee for failure to supply the master reels for their album Stained Class. Now, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Little suspicious that uh, they supplied their master reels for like every album except for the one that made two kids kill themselves. Hmm. Huh? Why? What's the problem? Why? Why couldn't we get the those like the only master reels that mattered? Judas Priest and forty grand. Hell, that's chump change to a huge metal band in the in the eighties. You know, a little suspicious. But little uh, that's suspicious. where I'll leave that. Now. This whole series of events was documented in the 1991 film Dream Deceivers, which is a highly recommended docu-dump watch. It was directed by David Van Taylor, uh, and it's definitely from the art support 
point of view. You know, he he knew this was ridiculous. He saw the article in Vanity Fair, and he's like, I got to get down there. This is a total travesty and a fucking embarrassment for justice and art and free speech and everything. And, uh, you know, he, he interviews James Vance at length before he died, and Vance seems to be both remorseful for what happened and he does blame the band, but when he talks about the band, he's, he sounds like their biggest fan, and mm-hmm. he's almost bummed to have dragged them into this. Yeah. You know, and he, w- and he would go to the playground and sit on the, the roundabout and talk to his friend Ray. It's horrendously depressing. It's very sad. You know, and you and- can tell there's nothing but regret in what happened, and now it's embarrassing because he had to make an excuse. He wrote the letter to the mom, uh, you know, being like, well, this is why I did it, like, because he didn't want the parents to think that they were so shitty, you know, because now the weight of what happened is, is you know, clear to him. Yeah. But, and I mean, yeah, it, it, it's just very, very also rough, after, rough watch, but important. Also, I mean, after surviving that, um, and then at that at that very moment of you, you surviving this suicide attempt, I mean, at that point, it's like your mother is the person, like your family is, I mean, they are getting him through, you know, literally just through that process so it, it's also it would it would make sense that at that moment you're you would be kind of more willing to be you know open to whatever it is that your mother is saying you know at that right. very moment uh, again i also want to say that it's not i also i do have sympathy for his mother or at least maybe sure. i just i just feel bad because it is so shitty and it it is one of those things where you feel that she there is something about just feeling so convinced that the religion and praying was gonna do it you know i mean like meaning like the stepfather just does seem like a real piece of shit um and the mother seems like is 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 a more like a complex she's helpless character. you know she's getting beat um, too yeah probably you know that is not i don't know if they said that for sure but i don't you know, know if they said but that but i think it's it, safe to assume you could, yeah, this, yeah 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 you know. um and just you know it is kind of yeah it's it's it is very sad um also interestingly uh the after the trial judas priest went on tour and uh they played the song uh 15 times and then everyone in the crowd killed themselves no i think they played it like the first show of the first tour of the tour after and then they and then they kind of like stopped retired it but i think it might have just been a bit of a fuck you like hey we can do this all these kids you didn't kill themselves it's you not know. that great yeah. it's not that great of a song Jesus <laughs> priest has way sicker songs yeah yeah i mean living I'll, after i'll take hell bent for leather or turbo lover or fucking another amazing cover they do diamonds and rust the joan Baez song mm-hmm. like Fuck it, I'll take any of that stuff. Not like that's all safe to me. I don't think there's any duets in Diamonds and Rust unless Joan Baez wrote that shit in. I will say, Living After Midnight does oh, influence yeah. me to want to live after midnight. And I'm gonna go Dude, on breaking record the law as, makes me want to break it, the law, but that's not because of subliminal <laughs> messages. It's the fucking message. Yeah. It is the message. I do want to break the law with Rob Halford. Um, yeah, like jaywalking, stealing like some Starburst or something. <laughs> You know, nothing's nothing serious. But um, so Judas Priest, they did have a couple other major things that like, you know, made that makes them stand out in pop culture history. Like, for instance, Rob Halford's coming out of the closet, which was like apparently crazy shocking for metalheads and fans. But it's like, dude, this guy like. Create like the guy, the leather daddy from the village people is like based on Rob Halford. Like, 
you know, it's like it's it's crazy to me that yes. no one saw that, that coming. That is kind of um, one of But those, it was a big thing, but it, it yeah. made it made waves and it opened a lot of doors in the heavy metal world it, and so we have him to thank for did. bringing mean, tolerance you know, and acceptance. It's uh, um, it kind of is that, you know, the Liberace thing, another uh, one of our our big dino dumps future that we mega dumps, do. yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it 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 and that does again, it's easy to look back now and you're kind of like, well, looking at his image and looking at everything that we know about culture in the last 20 30 years yeah it seems very obvious that rob halford was gay but that's where you have to there is a that's the thing is like there was an effort by the band to be like okay like our fans are a bunch of like straight headbanging dudes uh you know maybe it's not in our best interest for image and selling records to uh be letting everyone know that he's you know out i mean like even like Elton John and Freddie Mercury to a degree, like those artists, it, it just wasn't the same of just like they, they, they very much pursued the avenue of being like musicians and rock and rollers and like not necessarily being like, yes, I am gay and out and proud. And like, that's so right. It, it does show where, and again, you know, you know, Elton John versus Rob Halford, uh, one is a little bit, uh, Easier to see coming than the other, I guess. But uh, it reminds me of like an Austin Powers when he's catching up on world history and he's like, I can't believe Liberace was gay. But um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The other thing that happened is, uh, oh, and Rob Halford actually in their behind the music, he talks about like how he would keep it hidden for so long. And, you know, they like all the guys would be partying on the bus and like bringing chicks back. And he would just have to be like, like for like decades, just be like, oh, I'm pretty tired. I think I'm just going to call it a night. Like yeah. every night of like 50 show runs. It's like, ah, I'll, I'll, I'll hang out with you guys later. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to go to bed. So, I mean, that, that was, it was a big, a big deal, you know? Um, it was huge. Um, another thing, though, is he quit the band and they replaced him with a guy who I believe was from a Judas Priest tribute band who goes by the name Ripper. And that, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this, but is the basis for the film Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. Mm, like okay. that's that's where they got that whole thing from. And then also Ripper opened up like Ripper's Rock Bar in like Michigan or something, and uh, that was on an episode of Bar Rescue. Like so, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you sing for Judas Priest, and then now you don't, and Rob Halford's back in the band, but uh, now you own this bar, and it sucks. So let me fix it for you. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's crazy. But the biggest one, uh, probably even, I mean, <laughs> definitely worse than than this whole trial was uh, original drummer Dave Holland. He uh, served a couple years in a British prison for pedophilia. He was molesting his drum students, uh, uh, like a 17-year-old boy, and there was many, many other accusations of said behavior on his part. So that's pretty damn bad. But these dirty at the end British here, so rockers. What does it all mean? Well, I guess it means that we all have a habit of trying to make sense of tragedy. This is where conspiracy theories come from in a lot of cases. I can understand why the families of James Vance and Ray Belknap wanted to find any reason for their son's actions as long as they didn't have to point the finger at themselves, which is probably where they should have started. We know subliminal messages exist, but this case showed us how unlikely it is that their intent is to cause harm. The victory aspect of the story is one worth cheering for. However, the loss of two young lives greatly outweighs the win. Even Rob Halford said that all he could really think about during the trial was how badly he wanted to speak to the families and apologize for their loss as losing two fans affected them as a band greatly as well. 
And that's what this whole trial means to me. And that's your dump for today. Do it. Um, big announcement. Uh, a couple things here. Well, first, um, you know, long, long time supporters of, of the show. My, my buddy is uh, in the band Ass Life. Uh, they got a new album coming out. I want to I want to talk about that really quick because this this episode should air before 420. And I hope you all have a good one at that. Do it. But uh, check it out if you're in L.A. Thursday, April 20th at Slipper Clutch in downtown L.A. It's going to be Ass Life with Prissy Whip, a couple other cool bands uh, that, that are playing. And uh, definitely check out Ass Life, one of my favorite groups. They have the line. I'm probably going to get it wrong. But uh, it's a song about being a teen. And it's... Uh, Ludacris and Underoath turned all the way up, blueberry vodka in a Taco Bell cup. And I, those are words that I live by. So do check out Ass Life on Bandcamp, asslife.bandcamp.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as you could tell, we, uh, are, we don't have another sponsor this week. I think uh, when they found out that we uh, included their ad in an episode about bum fights, they weren't that stoked. <laughs> so that's what I'm guessing has happened with our last sponsor. But um, May 19th, we are doing a show for our other podcast, Podcast 99. We are going to be showing the Woodstock 99 mystery tape. Never before seen or aired footage. It's an independently cut together documentary uh, made by the local newspaper up there, Rome, the Rome Sentinel. And it is a wild ride. It is all filmed from the perspective of an audience member. So it's uh, there's no music shown in it. Like There's very, very little music shown. It's mostly just what's going on on the grounds. It's great. We're going to have the Artifact Museum set up. So May 19th, if you're in L.A., come check out the Woodstock 99 mystery tape at Whammy. Uh, what else do we got, Parks? What else do we got? Patreon, right? <laughs> we got a whole bunch of new stuff on Patreon. Patreon.com slash culture dumps. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about some uh, rock and roll super groups soon, or maybe we already have, depending on when it comes out. Uh, and please, you know, give us a subscribe. Do it. Put a little. Yeah, do it. Do it. Do it. Um, because it just helps us out. It puts a little money in the pocket. Do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Also, I just want to say, you know, Ass Life did play, uh, did work up a bunch of new metal covers for our L.A. Uh, Podcast 99 show. And yeah. I said yeah, break right. stuff with them. And it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's just good, good, fun time, rowdy music. So do do check them out. They worked really hard on this album. There's like forty thousand fucking songs on it. Um, <laughs> besides that, I'm Ryan Lichten. Been joined by my good buddy Parks Miller. Stay safe. Take care of yourself. Don't listen to too much Judas Priest, and uh, keep on dumping. <laughs>